0: Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, this morning we're going to look just at one verse. It's found in verse 21. This week marks the final week leading up to the crucifixion of our Lord. As you read the gospel accounts, it gives us a good understanding of what that week entailed. For example, on Saturday, Jesus would have arrived in Bethany. He would have stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. On Sunday, crowds would have gathered in Bethany to hear Him teach. As He taught, He predicted His death. And then He visited the temple On Monday, he rode into the city of Jerusalem to the hosannas and the praises of the people who had proclaimed him as their Messiah. And he also cursed a fig tree. And then on Tuesday, he gives the lesson from the fig tree to his disciples. And then he goes back into the temple and he cleanses the temple of the money changers. On Wednesday... He both taught the people as well as rebuked the religious leaders while the Sanhedrin plotted to kill him. That evening, he ascended the Mount of Olives and he taught the disciples about his second coming. On Thursday, Peter and John prepare for the Passover and that evening, Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover meal. Also, during supper, he washed the disciples' feet, and he delivered his farewell discourse in the upper room. After the meal, they sang a hymn, and then they left the upper room. They passed through the city of Jerusalem. They went out the eastern gate, north of the temple. They descended the slope of the temple mount, they crossed the Kidron brook, and while crossing that Kidron brook, they would have seen blood in the stream from the thousands of lambs that were slaughtered for Passover. And then he ascended the Mount of Olives. They stopped for a a brief time on the slope of the Mount of Olives where Jesus had warned his disciples about their impending defection. Then they arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where Jesus interceded with the Father and later taken prisoner. And so on Friday, after he was taken prisoner, he spent the rest of his time between two trials, a religious Jewish trial and a secular Roman trial. It was also during this time that Peter denied Jesus and the rooster crows. Following those two trials, he was condemned to death on a cross Also, Judas comes in, changing his mind at what he had done in betraying the Son of God. He returns the silver, and then he goes out and hangs himself. Pilate questions Jesus. He sends him then to Herod, Antipas. Herod questions him and then sends him back to Pilate. Jesus appears before Pilate the second time, and now he's condemned to die. Well, the process that follows at this point is he is mocked, beaten, and then he's marched to Golgotha where he is crucified between two thieves. Scripture teaches he breathed his last, and then Joseph of Arimathea took his body down and buried him in a tomb. On Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees place a guard at the tomb with Pilate's permission. And then on Sunday, some women come and they discover the empty tomb. And they're instructed by the angels, and they're they're fearful and joyful at the same time, and they leave the garden to go tell his disciples. And of course, Peter and John rush to the tomb based on Mary Magdalene's report, and they discovered the same thing. It's empty. Mary returns to the tomb, and it's then she encounters Jesus. Jesus appears to Clopas and a friend. Later, on the road to Emmaus, and that evening, he appeared to the eleven, and Thomas wasn't with them. Later, he appeared again to the eleven, but this time Thomas was with them, and that's where we hear in... John 20, Thomas's bold exclamation, my Lord and my God. He then appears to some of his disciples at the Sea of Galilee, and he commissions them, and then he ascends back to the Father. Those were the events of this week leading up to his death, and of course after his death, and than His resurrection and ascension. When we talk about the crucifixion of Christ, we understand that that is the climax of redemptive history. God's plan of salvation culminated in the cross. As our Lord bears the sins of the world and provides salvation to all who would believe, As we look at 2 Corinthians 5 this morning for our text, we understand that this verse is composed of 15 Greek words. It gives us the purpose of the crucifixion from God's standpoint. Notice what it says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All of us have been affected by what the Puritan writer Ralph Venning calls the plague of plagues. This one plague is more widespread and deadly than all other plagues combined. In fact, it affects every person who ever lived, and it's 100% fatal. Unlike other plagues, which cause actually only physical death, this plague causes both physical and spiritual death as well. And, of course, the plague I'm referring to is the plague of sin. Because Adam's fall had plunged the entire human race into sin, all people are sinners from birth. We know that because Psalm 51.5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, and in sin my mother conceived me. And he was not talking about a sinful relationship that his mother had. No, he was talking about that all are sinners from birth, actually from conception. Psalm 58.3, David says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. So That cute, wonderful little baby that you and I love and adore is a sinner, just like we are sinners. And not only are all people sinners by nature, but they're also sinners by action because we hear in Romans 3:10 that there's none righteous, no not even one. And even later on in Romans 3:23 it says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So as 1 Kings 8:46 says, there is no man who does not sin. All of us are sinners. So the inevitable outcome for all those infected by the sin plague is death. For the wages of sin is death. In fact, Ezekiel eighteen twenty states it plainly. It says the person who sins will die, and that's the epitaph that we read about Adam. It says in Genesis five five he died, and you know what? That's written on the tombstones of all of his descendants. We're going to die. All of us. So the prognosis is not good, and it's certainly not any better in the spiritual realm. Sin produces two disastrous spiritual consequences. One is alienation from God in this life, and the second one is unrelenting punishment in hell for all eternity. But the good news of the gospel is that there is a cure for the sinner who has been infected by the deadly Sin epidemic. God, who is rich in mercy, God, who is rich in love, has provided a remedy for sin. And that remedy is the sacrifice of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Bible says in Revelation 1 5, released us from our sins by His blood. Hebrews 10 14 says, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Those those who experience redemption through His blood, those who experience the forgiveness of their trespasses according to the riches of His grace, are cured. Did you hear me? Cured from the deadly spiritual effects of our sin. And as a result first John 3:14 says that they have passed out of death into life. And Ephesians 2:19 says that they are no longer strangers and aliens but are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Now beloved how he can make this possible is right here in second Corinthians. <clears throat> we already read verse 21 but I want to back you up to verse 18. And read down to verse 21 again, just so that you have an understanding of what he is saying here. How God made the cure possible is the theme of verses 18 through 20. In those three verses, he is describing the glorious truth of reconciliation. Listen to what he says. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you'll notice that verse 21 begins with the pronoun he. But if you go down to the end of the verse, it reveals that the antecedent he is God the Father. God is the one who initiated our reconciliation. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Reconciliation is God's plan. It could not occur unless He initiated it and applied it. Again, look back at verse 18. All these things are of God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. We are reconciled through Christ to God. Verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. It could not occur apart from Him because we cannot devise our own religious approach to God. Why? Because we're dead in trespasses and sins. At least we used to be, right? The dooming lie of false religion is that man can reconcile himself to God by his own efforts. But all attempts are futile. Paul said to Titus, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us. In Ephesians 2.4, he said it was because of God's great love in which He loved us. Verse 9 says it's not as a result of works. All of our deeds, apart from Christ, are like a filthy garment. All of them wither away like a leaf, and their iniquities, like the wind, take them away. Isaiah 64, verse 6, and as a result... There is none righteous, not even one. Not even the Israelites. Paul says in Romans 9, 4, To whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple services, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, could devise a way to reconcile themselves to God. And you see, even Romans 10 reflects that same truth. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God apart from Christ. God is the initiator. And we need Him to be the initiator. Why is that? Because... Prior to Christ, we are dead in our sins. And as one dead in their sins, you can't respond. Unless someone greater than you initiates a response from you, makes it possible for you to have a response. In other words, regenerates you. You can't regenerate yourself. Dead people can't make themselves alive. Only God can make you alive. We need to understand that Jesus did not go to the cross because a fickle people turned on Him, though they did. He didn't go to the cross because demon-deceived false religious leaders plotted His death, though they did. He did not go to the cross because Judas betrayed him, though he did. He did not die because an angry, unruly mob intimidated a Roman governor into sentencing him to crucifixion, though they did. Jesus went to the cross as the outworking of God's plan to reconcile sinners to himself. If you look at the first sermon that was ever preached by Peter, He had declared to the nation of Israel that Jesus was delivered over to death by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The sovereignty of God in the death of Christ. You can't ignore it. can't ignore it. In fact, when Peter said that on the day of Pentecost, he still condemned them for their part. And rightly so. But we have to understand it's only God who could design an atonement for sin that would satisfy His own justice, that would propitiate His wrath, that would be consistent with His love and grace and mercy. Only God could conceive such a plan. Philippians 2.8 tells us that being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Only God knew what it would take to rescue sinners from the domain of darkness and transfer them to the kingdom of His beloved Son, making them qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. Only God knew how to make sinners who are deserving of hell acceptable in His sight and fit to spend eternity in His presence. Only God could do that. So we need to understand, then, this whole issue of reconciliation. It's initiated by God, and it actually flows out of His love. I mean, it's it's because He so loved the world, right? Because He so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, and that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? Right? This is a demonstration of His own love toward us. As Romans 5.8 says that and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was His love. As I was studying this, I was just reminded of this because, you know, I have to confess to you that sometimes when I read things in the news, I hate what I read, obviously, but sometimes I say, you know, Lord, I hate that person. And then I stopped and I go, yeah, I really can't hate them. They're unbelievers. They need Jesus. And they're acting like they are because they need Jesus. Because I acted like that before Jesus came into my life. And then I repented of that. But reconciliation, it flows out of His love. God is rich in mercy, God is rich in love. And it tells us in Ephesians 2.4 that even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. The next phrase there in verse 21 shows us how God provided His own appeasement for justice and the means for sinners to become His children. It says, "...He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf." That points to the only sacrifice for sin. It eliminates every human who had ever lived because there's no man who has ever sinned, or not sinned, rather, because we've all sinned. There's only one who knew no sin, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the perfect sacrifice for sin. He was the only one that could appease the Father. He's the only one that could appease the Father's wrath. And so for him to be able to appease the wrath of God, that tells us something about him, doesn't it? He made him who knew no sin. Jesus is without sin. He never has had any sin. He never could sin. If he could sin, he wouldn't be God. Now, I know when we were in Mark 1 and dealing with the temptation of Christ that different questions come up about that. How could He genuinely be tempted if He couldn't sin? I don't understand all of that. But I do know this. You can be tempted and not sin. Can't you? Do you think that every time you're tempted that you have to yield to the temptation? I mean, even take James chapter 1. James chapter 1 talks about trials and temptations. It talks about how we receive the word. It talks about true and undefiled religion before God. And in that chapter, the first 12 verses are talking about trials. It's interesting that the word for trials is the Greek word parasmos. It's the noun form. But then when you get to verse 13, it talks about temptation, and that's the verb form. It's parazo. So he's essentially talking about the same thing, but understand it this way. By going to the verb form in verse 13 and following and talking about temptation, he's essentially telling us that if we failed the trial, it has now become a temptation. It has now become a solicitation to evil. And the Bible says in verse 13 that God cannot be tempted by evil. If He can't be tempted by evil, He doesn't tempt anyone to evil either. In fact, Psalm 23 tells us that He leads us in righteousness. And never should any of us blame God for our sin. But you know, the passage is actually saying something else. It's only apparent in the Greek. It's not apparent in the English. And what it's saying in the Greek is, is here's how you blame God for your sin when you're tempted. You do it remotely. You don't do it directly. You don't say... God, you caused me to sin, or you don't say what Adam did, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me of the tree and I ate. No, it's done remotely. It's, it's blaming God for His providence. His providence led you in a situation, but because you failed the test, because that's what trials are, the testing of your faith, and now it's become a temptation to to sin, you can't blame him for that. But sometimes we do. If you look there in verse 21, we learned that Jesus was treated as if he was a sinner, even though he wasn't. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Him who knew no sin refers to Jesus. And that truth was affirmed by him and by others. He said of himself in John eight forty six, he said, Which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? See, every time they tried to trap him in something, they couldn't. So they had to make things up. Isn't that how it usually works? When someone can't trap you in something, they can't get you to fall, they can't get you to join them in their their little sin parade right there, they have to make something up. Let's make sure that they can only make it up, right? And they really have nothing that sticks. Part of being blameless or unblameable is that they could come up with the accusations, but it doesn't stick because it's not true. Pilate repeatedly affirmed Jesus' innocence. In fact, he said in Luke 23, 4, I find no guilt in this man. Here, Here is an unbeliever who experienced the Messiah, who had horrible dreams leading up to this encounter with him, who was plagued. Actually, it was his wife who had those dreams, and she was plagued by that, and she warned him, have nothing to do with this man but he was pressured, wasn't he? I mean, if you start saying uh, something like, if you don't do something about this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. That's a problem. Pilate cared more about appeasing others. Now, history records that Pilate committed suicide later. And maybe it was over the guilt of all of this. But we even hear, like in Luke 23, 41, an unbelieving thief on a cross, suffering the punishment for his wrong deeds, he said this, this man has done nothing wrong. Even the Roman centurion who was in charge of the execution, Luke 23, 47, says, certainly this man was innocent. See the testimony that you hear about Jesus? He knew no sin. See, if if, if he sinned, people would see it. Somebody would see it. Somebody would eventually know about it, you know? It's kind of like us. You know, sometimes we try to do things in, in hiding. You know, the sin's in the closet, if you will. And we think nobody will ever find out about that. But you know what? The Bible says your sin will find you out. It will be made known. You know, the apostles also testified about the sinlessness of Christ. Peter referred to Jesus in Acts 3:14 as being the holy and righteous one. And even in his first epistle, he declared that Jesus was unblemished and spotless. He says in chapter two and verse 22, he committed no sin. In chapter three and verse 18, he refers to him as being just. He was without sin. Even in 1 John 3, 5, the Apostle John said about Jesus, in him there is no sin. So how can we come up and say that Jesus could sin? Hebrews tells us in chapter 4 and verse 15 that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And why is that? Well, chapter 7, verse 26 of Hebrews says, He is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and He's exalted above the heavens. That's our Savior this morning. Worthy of worship, right? And I hope this morning that that's what you have been giving Him and that you're still giving it to Him now as you are listening to His Word. You're giving Him worship. After presenting Jesus as the absolute holy substitute for sinners, if you look down back at verse 21, the text makes the remarkable statement that God made Him to be sin. Here's the one who had no sin, but God made Him to be sin. That doesn't mean that Christ became a sinner. That's what we hear in the Christian... Media today, that certainly goes against everything Scripture teaches. One commentator says, As God in human flesh, He could not possibly have committed any sin or in any way violated God's law. He was the unblemished lamb while on the cross, personally guilty of no evil. Even Isaiah 53, 4-6 describes the only sense in which Jesus could be made sin. Listen to what it says. Surely our griefs He Himself bore Not made a sinner, nor was he punished for any sin of his own. Instead, the Father treated him as if he were a sinner by charging to his account the sins of everyone who would ever believe. So what's that mean if you never believe? The sins charged to you. Why is hell forever? Why isn't there any relief from that? I think that is showing us that if you were to redeem yourself from your sins, it'd take forever to do it. Which basically means it's not going to happen. Forever is a long time. We don't really understand it in terms of time because you and I live by time. We live by a clock, right? I'm looking at that wonderful thing up there. But we live by that, we live by time. And so forever doesn't always make sense. But equally, we could talk about hell being forever because it is, but we can also talk about eternity with Christ being forever. Because when that glorious day comes and you, through death, cross into the wonderful doorway that leads you to the Father, you will be in His presence forever forever. Forever. You won't have any sin. I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? No sin. No more of this flesh to fight with. No more of impure worship. And what I mean by that is you may have had this happen already to you this morning that you're worshiping the Lord and all of a sudden an impure thought comes in your mind. And you know, where in the world did that come from? It's your flesh. It's your flesh. Why do you think Paul cried out, Oh, wretched man that I am. He saw it. The one who lived a sinless life died a sinner's death, estranged from God, and the object of wrath, he was treated as a sinner in his death. It's really crucial to understand that the only sense in which Jesus was made sin was by imputation, because He was personally pure. He was personally holy. But when He died on the cross, He didn't become evil like we are. He took our sin, and He bore it in His own body. He took our punishment. He took our shame, and He bore it in His body. He took the punishment for us. And in case you're wondering if you're a sinner or not, you've already heard a host of scriptures that say that you are, but just survey your life. Do you do what sinners do? What's the answer to that? What do sinners do? They sin. Do you sin? We do. Even as redeemed people, we sin. Do we want to sin? No. Are we broken over that sin as redeemed people? Yes. Yes. We know it grieves our Heavenly Father? Yes. You know, when I was an unbeliever, I didn't care about any of that. You probably didn't either. I didn't think twice about sinning, I sinned. Loved it. Not all of it, loved a lot of it. But we learn here that God credits believers' sin to Christ's account and his righteousness to theirs. So, imputation. God imputes Christ's righteousness to you. He imputes His death to you. There's no way that we can be reconciled to God on our own. No one is able to, according to Galatians 3.10, abide by all the things that are written in this book to perform them. I mean, think about it, if you violate even one precept of the law, that right there warrants eternal punishment in hell. You break one commandment, you broke them all. Now let me ask you again, are you a sinner? You broken any of the commandments? You ever lied? You ever stole anything? Ever looked at lust? Someone? Opposite sex? See, someone would come back and say, well, I've been tempted to do that, but I didn't do it. And as I said a while ago, temptation is not the sin. It's when you yield to it. You can be tempted to do those things and not give in to it. You can be tempted to allot- do a lot of things and not give in to it. But I wouldn't go around playing with it. I don't go to bars anymore. I've been out of them almost 40 years. And some would say, well, you could go there and, and witness to people. Well, knowing my past, I probably wouldn't do that. Probably join right in with them. Honestly, I don't think I would do that. But why would I want to put myself in the place of temptation? See, I'm just going to say this and move on because this is something that needs to be said in terms of liberty. When we exercise our liberty in front of people, we really don't know what's going on in each other's lives, do we? We don't know what the past was like. So, if a Christian exercises its liberty, says, I have this liberty to, to do this, and let's just say drink, alcohol, and they want to do it in front of me, they don't know my past. My past was I was an alcoholic, my past was I was a drug addict. That was my past. That's not my present and hasn't been for almost 40 years. But again, why would I want to put myself in a place of temptation? Put myself in that place where I could fall. So if you violate even one precept, the law would warrant eternal punishment in hell. One writer says, the entire human race is cursed and unable to do anything to lift that curse. Therefore, the only reason believers can be reconciled to God is because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Were it not for the fact that while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, no one could be reconciled to God. without Christ's sacrifice, without Him becoming sin on our behalf, we couldn't be redeemed. That leads to the last part of verse 21, the purpose. The purpose of reconciliation is right there. Why did He do this? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The people of reconciliation are those chosen in Him. Before the foundation of the world. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's a hint of purpose clause in Greek. It's so that, for the purpose of, is what it means. Jesus did this so that you could have this. He became sin for you and I so that we could become the righteousness of God, because apart from that, that wasn't going to happen. And His righteousness, as I said earlier, is imputed to us. That's a wonderful, beautiful picture, because we don't see ourselves always like that, do we? We're righteous. We're holy. Now we just got to get our practice to match our position, right? That's where the problem lies. As we carry around this corpse called the flesh, this body of death Paul refers to, we carry that around, and that's what brings us down. Not the work of the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit, you're not going to sin. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That sounds like to me you're not going to sin when you're walking by the Spirit. You see, when you read that in Galatians 5, and then he goes into the works of the flesh, and then right after that he goes into the fruit of the Spirit, what's illustrative of that whole passage there is that the works of the flesh you want to restrain. You don't want to restrain the work of the Spirit. You don't want to restrain love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? You don't want to restrain that. And if you're spirit-filled, you you don't really need a a law that says, don't beat your wife with a club, right? You, You don't need anything like that. You don't need a prohibition because you're walking in the spirit. When you look there at the antecedent of our reconciliation, it's found in verse 20, to whom the word of reconciliation was committed, and it's that phrase in verse 20, ambassadors for Christ. We are those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world. We are those whom Christ died for We are now those who have been reconciled to God through Christ, and we're ambassadors of Christ. His death was efficacious only for those who believe. It's not efficacious if you don't believe. So, beloved, if you're sitting here this morning and you have not believed in Christ, then His death has no effect on you right now. What He did on the cross has no effect on you. Which means that you are left in your sin. Which means is, if you die, that's it. Instant judgment. Instant judgment. And so don't sit here and listen to what Christ did for you. And be unbelieving. Pray like that man said, Lord, help my unbelief. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John 3.17 says that God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, the verdict has already been passed. It's already been pronounced. What is left now is the carrying out of the sentence. And so no wonder Jonathan Edwards would would speak of the sinner like hanging from a spider's web, dangling before hell. And at any moment, that, that little strand could snap and they would be in hell which basically means this at any moment God can say your life is now required of you how about that rich man who, who built his barns and then he built bigger barns to store all this his stuff in uh, to prepare himself for the f- future days and that's where his trust was but God said today your life is required and now who will all those things belong to don't put your trust in other things Put your trust in Christ, Christ alone. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So therefore, only those who believe can become children of God. They are the ones who will not perish They're the ones who have everlasting life. They're the ones who are not condemned. And they also are those whom the Father gives to Jesus. Every believer is a love gift from the Father to Jesus. John 6. And everyone that the Father gives to Jesus will come to Him. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And then John six sixty five. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. No one is a condition. Not anyone can come unless the Father draws you or unless it's been granted from the Father. Now, the result here, we see also in verse 21, as he says there, the result of reconciliation is us becoming the righteousness of God in him. As I said, that phrase, so that, in a purpose clause, it reflects the benefit of God's imputation. You become the righteousness of God. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3.9, that we may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. In other words, the very righteousness God requires before he can accept the sinner is the very righteousness that he provides. And because Jesus paid the full penalty for our sin, God no longer holds it against us. David said in Psalm 32, 1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He said in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Isn't that wonderful? There is forgiveness. You know, when uh, the gospel was shared with me, The first time. I'll never forget what he said. He said, Steve, you need to be forgiven of all your sins. And the only way you can be forgiven of all your sins is to give your life to Jesus Christ, Him only. And Jesus will forgive you of your sins. Boom! Regeneration occurred. You can't come to Christ unless that happens. We tend to think that it's the other way around. You come first and then you're regenerated. But remember, you're dead in trespasses and sins. You can't do anything unless God enables that in you. And that's what He does at regeneration. So this morning, as we think about this week, going back some 2,000 years in the life of Christ... In fact, I found it very interesting in a lot of my reading this week that all of these events occurred in 33 AD. They occurred also in March, the end of March, and up to the first week of April. So you want to know where we get our idea of a date for Easter? There it is, right there. Beloved, the justification that is through Christ is a gift. Faith is a gift, repentance is a gift, and it's from God. Not something that you can stir up yourself, not something that you can do on your own, though we tend to think that we did. And, and really from a human perspective, if somebody asks you, how do I become a Christian? Well, you've got to repent. Repent. You've got to confess Christ. You've got to come to Christ. And from a human perspective, it looks like it's you. But from a divine perspective, it's God granting that to you. He grants you repentance, 2 Timothy 2.24. He grants you faith, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. And so therefore, Romans 3.24, we become justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Beloved, does that describe you this morning? Are you His? I hope that you are. And I pray with all my heart that God will open your heart to give heed to what we just heard and all for His glory. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank you for what we're reminded of and the sacrifice that Christ paid on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We acknowledge, Lord, that we could not do this ourselves, that you have done this in us. And so, Lord, do this in others here this morning, we pray. And all God's people said,